Revelation, Chapter 3 Matthew Henry's Commentary on the Whole Bible An Exposition, with Practical Observations, of The Revelation of St. John the Divine Chapter 3 Here we have three more of the Epistles of Christ to the Churches. 1. To Sardis, verses 1-6 to 2. To Philadelphia, verses 7-13 to 3. To Laodicea, verses 14-22 to Revelation 3 verses 1 to 6. Here is 1. The preface, showing 1. To whom this letter is directed, to the angel of the church of Sardis, an ancient city of Lydia, on the banks of the mountain Tmolus, said to have been the chief city of Asia the less, and the first city in that part of the world that was converted by the preaching of John, and, some say, the first that revolted from Christianity, and one of the first that was laid in its ruins, in which it still lies, without any church or ministry. 2. By whom this message was sent the Lord Jesus, who here assumes the character of him that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, taken out of chapter 1 verse 4, where the seven spirits are said to be before the throne. 1. He hath the seven spirits, that is, the Holy Spirit with his various powers, graces, and operations, for he is personally one, though efficaciously various, and may be said here to be seven, which is the number of the churches, and of the angels of the churches, to show that to every minister, and to every church, there is a dispensation and measure of the Spirit given for them to profit with all a stock of spiritual influence for that minister and church to improve, both for enlargement and continuance, which measure of the Spirit is not ordinarily withdrawn from them, till they forfeit it by misimprovement. Churches have their spiritual stock and fund, as well as particular believers, and, this epistle being sent to a languishing ministry and church, they are very fitly put in mind that Christ has the seven spirits, the spirit without measure and in perfection, to whom they may apply themselves for the reviving of his work among them. 2. He hath the seven stars, the angels of the churches, they are disposed of by him, and accountable to him, which should make them faithful and zealous. He has ministers to employ, and spiritual influences to communicate to his ministers for the good of his church. The Holy Spirit usually works by the ministry, and the ministry will be of no efficacy without the Spirit, the same divine hand holds them both. 2. The body of this epistle. There is this observable in it, that whereas in the other epistles Christ begins with commending what is good in the churches, and then proceeds to tell them what is amiss, in this, and in the epistle to Laodicea, he begins. 1. With a reproof, and a very severe one, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Hypocrisy, and a lamentable decay in religion, are the sins charged upon this church, by one who knew her well, and all her works. 1. This church had gained a great reputation, it had a name, and a very honorable one, for a flourishing church, a name for vital lively religion, for purity of doctrine, unity among themselves, uniformity in worship, decency, and order. We read not of any unhappy divisions among themselves. Everything appeared well, as to what falls under the observation of men. 2. This church was not really what it was reputed to be. They had a name to live, but they were dead, there was a form of godliness, but not the power, a name to live, but not a principle of life. If there was not a total privation of life, yet there was a great deadness in their souls and in their services, a great deadness in the spirits of their ministers, and a great deadness in their ministrations, in their praying, in their preaching, in their converse, and a great deadness in the people in hearing, in prayer, and in conversation, what little life was yet left among them was, in a manner, expiring, ready to die.
2. Our Lord proceeds to give this degenerate church the best advice, be watchful, and strengthen the things, etc., verse 2. 1. He advises them to be upon their watch. The cause of their sinful deadness and declension was that they had let down their watch. Whenever we are off our watch, we lose ground, and therefore must return to our watchfulness against sin and Satan and whatever is destructive to the life and power of godliness. 2. To strengthen the things that remain and that are ready to die. Some understand this of persons, there were some few who had retained their integrity, but they were in danger of declining with the rest. It is a difficult thing to keep up to the life and power of godliness ourselves, when we see a universal deadness and declension prevailing round about us. Or it may be understood of practices, as it follows, I have not found thy works perfect before God, not filled up, there is something wanting in them, there is the shell, but not the kernel, there is the carcass, but not the soul a shadow, but not the substance. The inward thing is wanting, thy works are hollow and empty, prayers are not filled up with holy desires, alms deeds not filled up with true charity, sabbaths not filled up with suitable devotion of soul to God, there are not inward affections suitable to outward acts and expressions. Now when the spirit is wanting the form cannot long subsist. 3. To recollect themselves, and remember how they have received and heard, verse 3, not only to remember what they had received and heard, what messages they had received from God, what tokens of His mercy and favor towards them, what sermons they had heard, but how they had received and heard, what impressions the mercies of God had made upon their souls at first, what affections they felt working under their word and ordinances, the love of their espousals, the kindness of their youth. How welcome the gospel and the grace of God were to them when they first received them. Where is the blessedness they then spoke of? For, to hold fast what they had received, that they might not lose all, and repent sincerely that they had lost so much of the life of religion, and had run the risk of losing all. 3. Christ enforces his counsel with a dreadful threatening in case it should be despised, I will come unto thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know the hour. Verse 3. Observe. 1. When Christ leaves a people as to his gracious presence, he comes to them in judgment, and his judicial presence will be very dreadful to those who have sinned away his gracious presence. 2. His judicial approach to a dead declining people will be surprising, their deadness will keep them in security, and, as it procures an angry visit from Christ to them, it will prevent their discerning it and preparing for it. 3. Such a visit from Christ will be to their loss, he will come as a thief, to strip them of their remaining enjoyments and mercies, not by fraud, but in justice and righteousness, taking the forfeiture they have made of all to him. For, our blessed Lord does not leave this sinful people without some comfort and encouragement, in the midst of judgment he remembers mercy, verse 4, and here. 1. He makes honorable mention of the faithful remnant in Sardis, though but small, thou hast a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments they had not given into the prevailing corruptions and pollution of the day and place in which they lived. God takes notice of the smallest number of those who abide with him, and the fewer they are the more precious in his sight. 2. He makes a very gracious promise to them, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy in the stola, the white robes of justification, and adoption, and comfort, or in the white robes of honor and glory, in the other world. They shall walk with Christ in the pleasant walks of the heavenly paradise and what delightful converse will there be between Christ and them when they thus walk together. This is an honor proper and suitable to their integrity, which their fidelity has prepared them for, and which it is no way unbecoming Christ to confer upon them, though it is not a legal but a gospel worthiness that is ascribed to them, not merit but meetness. 
Those who walk with Christ in the clean garments of real practical holiness here and keep themselves unspotted from the world shall walk with Christ in the white robes of honor and glory in the other world. This is a suitable reward. 3. We now come to the conclusion of this epistle, in which, as before, we have 1. A great reward promised to the conquering Christian, verse 5, and it is very much the same with what has been already mentioned, he that overcometh shall be clothed in white raiment. The purity of grace shall be rewarded with the perfect purity of glory. Holiness, when perfected, shall be its own reward, glory is the perfection of grace, differing not in kind, but in degree. Now to this is added another promise very suitable to the case, I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Observe. 1. Christ has his book of life, a register and roll of all who shall inherit eternal life. 1. The book of eternal election. 2. The book of remembrance of all those who have lived to God and have kept up the life and power of godliness in evil times. 2. Christ will not blot the names of his chosen and faithful ones out of this book of life. Men may be enrolled in the registers of the church, as baptized, as making a profession, as having a name to live, and that name may come to be blotted out of the roll, when it appears that it was but a name, a name to live, without spiritual life, such often lose the very name before they die, they are left of God to blot out their own names by their gross and open wickedness. But the names of those that overcome shall never be blotted out. 3. Christ will produce this book of life, and confess the names of the faithful who stand there, before God, and all the angels, he will do this as their judge, when the book shall be opened, he will do this as their captain and head, leading them with him triumphantly to heaven, presenting them to the Father, behold me, and the children that thou hast given me. How great will this honor and reward be! 2. The demand of universal attention finishes the message. Every word from God deserves attention from men, that which may seem more particularly directed to one body of men has something in it instructive to all. Revelation 3 verses 7 to 13 We have now come to the sixth letter, sent to one of the Asian churches, where observe. 1. The inscription, showing. 1. For whom it was more immediately designed, the angel of the church of Philadelphia, this also was a city in Asia Minor, seated upon the borders of Mysia and Lydia, and had its name from that brotherly love for which it was eminent. We can hardly suppose that this name was given to it after it received the Christian religion, and that it was so called from that Christian affection that all believers have, and should have, one for another, as the children of one Father and the brethren of Christ, but rather that it was its ancient name, on account of the love and kindness which the citizens had and showed to each other as a civil fraternity. This was an excellent spirit, and, when sanctified by the grace of the gospel, would render them an excellent church, as indeed they were, for here is no one fault found with this church, and yet, doubtless, there were faults in it of common infirmity, but love covers such faults. 2. By whom this letter was signed, even by the same Jesus who is alone the universal head of all the churches, and here observe by what title he chooses to represent himself to this church, he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, etc. You have his personal character, he that is holy and he that is true, holy in his nature, and therefore he cannot but be true to his word, for he hath spoken in his holiness, and you have also his political character, he hath the key of David, he openeth, and no man shutteth, he hath the key of the house of David, the key of government and authority in and over the church. Observe. 1. The Acts of His Government. 1. He opens. He opens a door of opportunity to his churches, 
he opens a door of utterance to his ministers, he opens a door of entrance, opens the heart, he opens a door of admission into the visible church, laying down the terms of communion, and he opens the door of admission into the church triumphant, according to the terms of salvation fixed by him. 2. He shuts the door. When he pleases, he shuts the door of opportunity and the door of utterance, and leaves obstinate sinners shut up in the hardness of their hearts, he shuts the door of church fellowship against unbelievers and profane persons, and he shuts the door of heaven against the foolish virgins who have slept away their day of grace, and against the workers of iniquity, how vain and confident soever they may be. 2. The way and manner in which he performs these acts, and that is absolute sovereignty, independent upon the will of men, and irresistible by the power of men, he openeth, and no man shutteth, he shutteth, and no man openeth, he works to will and to do, and, when he works, none can hinder. These were proper characters for him, when speaking to a church that had endeavored to be conformed to Christ in holiness and truth, and that had enjoyed a wide door of liberty and opportunity under his care and government. 2. The subject matter of this epistle, where? 1. Christ puts them in mind of what he had done for them, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, verse 8. I have set it open, and kept it open, though there be many adversaries. Learn here. 1. Christ is to be acknowledged as the author of all the liberty and opportunity his churches enjoy. 2. He takes notice and keeps account how long he has preserved their spiritual liberties and privileges for them. 3. Wicked men envy the people of God their door of liberty, and would be glad to shut it against them. For, if we do not provoke Christ to shut this door against us, men cannot do it. 2. This church is commended, thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name, verse 8. In this there seems to be couched a gentle reproof, Thou hast a little strength, a little grace, which, though it be not proportionate to the wide door of opportunity which I have opened to thee, yet is true grace, and has kept thee faithful. True grace, the weak, has the divine approbation, but, though Christ accepts a little strength, yet believers should not rest satisfied in a little, but should strive to grow in grace, to be strong in faith, giving glory to God. True grace, the weak, will do more than the greatest gifts or highest degrees of common grace, for it will enable the Christian to keep the word of Christ and not to deny his name. Obedience, fidelity, and a free confession of the name of Christ are the fruits of true grace and are pleasing to Christ as such. 3. Here is a promise of the great favor God would bestow on this church, verses 9 and 10. This favor consists in two things. 1. Christ would make this church's enemies subject to her. 1. Those enemies are described to be such as said they were Jews, but lied in saying so pretended to be the only and peculiar people of God, but were really the synagogue of Satan. Assemblies that worship God in spirit and in truth are the Israel of God, assemblies that either worship false gods, or the true God in a false manner, are the synagogues of Satan, though they may profess to be the only people of God, their profession is a lie. 2. Their subjection to the church is described, they shall worship at thy feet, not pay a religious and divine honor to the church itself, nor to the ministry of it, but shall be convinced that they have been in the wrong, that this church is in the right and is beloved of Christ, and they shall desire to be taken into communion with her and that they may worship the same God after the same manner. How shall this great change be wrought? By the power of God upon the hearts of his enemies, and by signal discoveries of his peculiar favor to his church, they shall know that I have loved thee. Observe. First, the greatest honor and happiness any church can enjoy consist in the peculiar love and favor of Christ. 
Secondly, Christ can discover this his favor to his people in such a manner that their very enemies shall see it and be forced to acknowledge it. Thirdly, this will, by the grace of Christ, soften the hearts of their enemies and make them desirous to be admitted into communion with them. Two, another instance of favor that Christ promises to this church is persevering grace in the most trying times, verse 10, and this as the reward of their past fidelity. To him that hath shall be given. Here observe. 1. The gospel of Christ is the word of his patience. It is the fruit of the patience of God to a sinful world, it sets before men the exemplary patience of Christ in all his sufferings for men, it calls those that receive it to the exercise of patience in conformity to Christ. 2. This gospel should be carefully kept by all that enjoy it, they must keep up to the faith and practice and worship prescribed in the gospel. 3. After a day of patience we must expect an hour of temptation, a day of gospel peace and liberty is a day of God's patience, and it is seldom so well improved as it should be and therefore it is often followed by an hour of trial and temptation. For, sometimes, the trial is more general and universal, it comes upon all the world, and, when it is so general, it is usually the shorter. 5. Those who keep the gospel in a time of peace shall be kept by Christ in an hour of temptation. By keeping the gospel they are prepared for the trial, and the same divine grace that has made them fruitful in times of peace will make them faithful in times of persecution. 4. Christ calls the church to that duty which he before promised he would enable her to do, and that is, to persevere, to hold fast that which she had. 1. The duty itself, hold fast that which thou hast, that faith, that truth, that strength of grace, that zeal, that love to the brethren, thou hast been possessed of this excellent treasure, hold it fast. 2. The motives, taken from the speedy appearance of Christ, behold, I come quickly. See, I am just a coming to relieve them under the trial, to reward their fidelity, and to punish those who fall away, they shall lose that crown which they once seemed to have a right to, which they hoped for, and pleased themselves with the thoughts of. The persevering Christian shall win the prize from backsliding professors, who once stood fair for it. 3. The Conclusion of this Epistle, Verses 12 and 13 Here 1. After his usual manner, our Savior promises a glorious reward to the victorious believer, in two things. 1. He shall be a monumental pillar in the temple of God, not a pillar to support the temple, heaven needs no such props, but a monument of the free and powerful grace of God, a monument that shall never be defaced nor removed, as many stately pillars erected in honor to the Roman emperors and generals have been. 2. On this monumental pillar there shall be an honorable inscription, as in those cases is usual. 1. The name of God, in whose cause he engaged, whom he served, and for whom he suffered in this warfare, and the name of the city of God, the church of God, the new Jerusalem, which came down from heaven. On this pillar shall be recorded all the services the believer did to the church of God, how he asserted her rights, enlarged her borders, maintained her purity and honor. This will be a greater name than Asiaticus, or Africanus, a soldier under God in the wars of the church. And then another part of the inscription is 2. The new name of Christ, the Mediator, the Redeemer, the Captain of our salvation, by this it will appear under whose banner this conquering believer had enlisted, under whose conduct he acted, by whose example he was encouraged, and under whose influence he fought the good fight and came off victorious. 2. The epistle is closed up with the demand of attention, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, how Christ loves and values his faithful people, how he commends, and how he will crown their fidelity. Revelation 3 verses 14 to 22
We now come to the last and worst of all the seven Asian churches, the reverse of the Church of Philadelphia, for, as there was nothing reproved in that, here is nothing commended in this, and yet this was one of the seven golden candlesticks, for a corrupt church may still be a church. Here we have, as before. 1. The inscription, to whom, and from whom. 1. To whom, to the angel of the church of Laodicea. This was a once famous city near the river Lycus, had a wall of vast compass, and three marble theaters, and, like Rome, was built on seven hills. It seems, the Apostle Paul was very instrumental in planting the gospel in this city, from which he wrote a letter, as he mentions in the epistle to the Colossians, the last chapter, in which he sends salutations to them, Laodicea not being above twenty miles distant from Coloss. In this city was held a council in the fourth century, but it has been long since demolished, and lies in its ruins to this day, an awful monument of the wrath of the Lamb. 2. From whom this message was sent. Here our Lord Jesus styles himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. 1. The Amen, one that is steady and unchangeable in all his purposes and promises, which are all yea and all Amen. 2. The faithful and true witness, whose testimony of God to men ought to be received and fully believed, and whose testimony of men to God will be fully believed and regarded, and will be a swift but true witness against all indifferent lukewarm professors. 3. The beginning of the creation of God, either of the first creation, and so he is the beginning, that is, the first cause, the creator, and the governor of it, or of the second creation, the church, and so he is the head of that body, the firstborn from the dead, as it is in chapter 1 verse 5, whence these titles are taken. Christ, having raised up himself by his own divine power, as the head of a new world, raises up dead souls to be a living temple and church to himself. 2. The subject matter, in which observe. 1. The heavy charge drawn up against this church, ministers, and people, by one who knew them better than they knew themselves, thou art neither cold nor hot, but worse than either, I would thou wert cold or hot, verse 15. Lukewarmness or indifference in religion is the worst temper in the world. If religion is a real thing, it is the most excellent thing, and therefore we should be in good earnest in it, if it is not a real thing, it is the vilest imposture, and we should be earnest against it. If religion is worth anything, it is worth everything, and indifference here is inexcusable, why halt you between two opinions? If God be God, follow him, if Baal, be God, follow him. Here is no room for neutrality. An open enemy shall have a fairer quarter than a perfidious neuter, and there is more hope of a heathen than of such. Christ expects that men should declare themselves in earnest either for him or against him. 2. A severe punishment threatened, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As lukewarm water turns the stomach and provokes to a vomit, lukewarm professors turn the heart of Christ against them. He is sick of them and cannot long bear them. They may call their lukewarmness charity, meekness, moderation, and a largeness of soul, it is nauseous to Christ and makes those so that allow themselves in it. They shall be rejected and finally rejected, for far be it from the holy Jesus to return to that which has been thus rejected. 3. We have one cause of this indifference and inconsistency in religion assigned, and that is self-conceitedness or self-delusion. They thought they were very well already, and therefore they were very indifferent whether they grew better or no, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, etc., verse 17. Here observe, what a difference there was between the thoughts they had of themselves and the thoughts that Christ had of them.
1. The high thoughts they had of themselves, thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, rich, and growing richer, and increased to such a degree as to be above all want or possibility of wanting. Perhaps they were well provided for as to their bodies, and this made them overlook the necessities of their souls. Or they thought themselves well furnished in their souls, they had learning, and they took it for religion, they had gifts, and they took them for grace, they had wit, and they took it for true wisdom, they had ordinances, and they took up with them instead of the God of ordinances. How careful should we be not to put the cheat upon our own souls? Doubtless there are many in hell that once thought themselves to be in the way to heaven. Let us daily beg of God that we may not be left to flatter and deceive ourselves in the concerns of our souls. 2. The mean thoughts that Christ had of them, and he was not mistaken. He knew, though they knew not, that they were wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Their state was wretched in itself, and such as called for pity and compassion from others, though they were proud of themselves, they were pitied by all who knew their case. 4. 1. They were poor, really poor, when they said and thought they were rich, they had no provision for their souls to live upon, their souls were starving in the midst of their abundance, they were vastly in debt to the justice of God, and had nothing to pay off the least part of the debt. 2. They were blind, they could not see their state, nor their way, nor their danger, they could not see into themselves, they could not look before them, they were blind, and yet they thought they saw, the very light that was in them was darkness, and then how great must that darkness be? They could not see Christ, though evidently set forth, and crucified, before their eyes. They could not see God by faith, though always present in them. They could not see death, though it was just before them. They could not look into eternity, though they stood upon the very brink of it continually. 3. They were naked, without clothing and without house and harbor for their souls. They were without clothing, had neither the garment of justification nor that of sanctification. Their nakedness both of guilt and pollution had no covering. They lay always exposed to sin and shame. Their righteousnesses were but filthy rags, they were rags, and would not cover them, filthy rags, and would defile them. And they were naked, without house or harbor, for they were without God, and he has been the dwelling place of his people in all ages, in him alone the soul of man can find rest, and safety, and all suitable accommodations. The riches of the body will not enrich the soul, the sight of the body will not enlighten the soul, the most convenient house for the body will not afford rest nor safety to the soul. The soul is a different thing from the body, and must have accommodations suitable to its nature, or else in the midst of bodily prosperity it will be wretched and miserable. For, we have good counsel given by Christ to this sinful people, and that is that they drop their vain and false opinion they had of themselves, and endeavor to be that really which they would seem to be, I counsel thee to buy of me, etc., verse 18. Observe. 1. Our Lord Jesus Christ continues to give good counsel to those who have cast his counsels behind their backs. 2. The condition of sinners in never desperate, while they enjoy the gracious calls and counsels of Christ. 3. Our blessed Lord, the Counselor, always gives the best advice, and that which is most suitable to the sinner's case, as here. 1. These people were poor, Christ counsels them to buy of him gold tried in the fire, that they might be rich. He lets them know where they might have true riches and how they might have them. First, where they might have them from himself, he sends them not to the streams of Pactolus, nor to the mines of Potosi, but invites them to himself, the pearl of price. Secondly, and how must they have this true gold from him? They must buy it. This seems to be unsaying all again. 
How can those that are poor buy gold? Just as they may buy of Christ wine and milk, that is, without money and without price, Isaiah 55 verse 1. Something indeed must be parted with, but it is nothing of a valuable consideration, it is only to make room for receiving true riches. Part with sin and self-sufficiency, and come to Christ with a sense of your poverty and emptiness, that you may be filled with His hidden treasure. 2. These people were naked, Christ tells them where they might have clothing, and such as would cover the shame of their nakedness. This they must receive from Christ, and they must only put off their filthy rags that they might put on the white raiment which he had purchased and provided for them his own imputed righteousness for justification and the garments of holiness and sanctification. 3. They were blind, and he counsels them to buy of him myself, that they might see, to give up their own wisdom and reason, which are but blindness in the things of God, and resign themselves to his word and spirit, and their eyes shall be opened to see their way and their end, their duty, and their true interest, a new and glorious scene would then open itself to their souls, a new world furnished with the most beautiful and excellent objects, and this light would be marvelous to those who were but just now delivered from the powers of darkness. This is the wise and good counsel Christ gives to careless souls, and, if they follow it, he will judge himself bound in honor to make it effectual. 5. Here is added great and gracious encouragement to this sinful people to take the admonition and advice well that Christ had given them, verses 19 and 20. He tells them. 1. It was given them in true and tender affection, whom I love, I rebuke, and chasten. You may think I have given you hard words and severe reproofs, it is all out of love to your souls. I would not have thus openly rebuked and corrected your sinful lukewarmness and vain confidence, if I had not been a lover of your souls, had I hated you, I would have let you alone, to go on in sin till it had been your ruin. Sinners ought to take the rebukes of God's word and rod as tokens of his good will to their souls, and should accordingly repent in good earnest, and turn to him that smites them, better are the frowns and wounds of a friend than the flattering smiles of an enemy. 2. If they would comply with his admonitions, he was ready to make them good to their souls, behold, I stand at the door and knock, etc., verse 20. Here observe. 1. Christ is graciously pleased by his word and spirit to come to the door of the heart of sinners, he draws near to them in a way of mercy, ready to make them a kind visit. 2. He finds this door shut against him, the heart of man is by nature shut up against Christ by ignorance, unbelief, sinful prejudices. 3. When he finds the heart shut, he does not immediately withdraw, but he waits to be gracious, even till his head be filled with the dew. 4. He uses all proper means to awaken sinners, and to cause them to open to him, he calls by his word, he knocks by the impulses of his spirit upon their conscience. 5. Those who open to him shall enjoy his presence, to their great comfort and advantage. He will sup with them, he will accept of what is good in them, he will eat his pleasant fruit and he will bring the best part of the entertainment with him. If what he finds would make but a poor feast, what he brings will make up the deficiency, he will give fresh supplies of graces and comforts, and thereby stir up fresh actings of faith, and love, and delight, and in all this Christ and his repenting people will enjoy pleasant communion with each other. Alas! What do careless obstinate sinners lose by refusing to open the door of the heart to Christ? 3. We now come to the conclusion of this epistle and here we have as before. 1. The promise made to the overcoming believer. It is here implied. 1. That though this church seemed to be wholly overrun and overcome with lukewarmness and self-confidence, yet it was possible that by the reproofs and counsels of Christ they might be inspired with fresh zeal and vigor, and might come off conquerors in their spiritual warfare.
2. That, if they did so, all former faults should be forgiven, and they should have a great reward. And what is that reward? They shall sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame, and have sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 21. Here it is intimated. 1. That Christ himself had met with his temptations and conflicts. 2. That he overcame them all, and was more than a conqueror. 3. That, as the reward of his conflict and victory, he has sat down with God the Father on his throne, possessed of that glory which he had with the Father from eternity, but which he was pleased very much to conceal on earth, leaving it as it were in the hands of the Father, as a pledge that he would fulfill the work of a Savior before he reassumed that manifestative glory, and, having done so, then pignus reposcra he demands the pledge, to appear in his divine glory equal to the Father. For, that those who are conformed to Christ in his trials and victories shall be conformed to him in his glory, they shall sit down with him on his throne, on his throne of judgment at the end of the world, on his throne of glory to all eternity, shining in his beams by virtue of their union with him and relation to him, as the mystical body of which he is the head. 2. All is closed up with the general demand of attention, verse 22, putting all to whom these epistles shall come in mind that what is contained in them is not of private interpretation, not intended for the instruction, reproof, and correction of those particular churches only, but of all the churches of Christ in all ages and parts of the world, and as there will be a resemblance in all succeeding churches to these, both in their graces and sins, so they may expect that God will deal with them as he dealt with these, which are patterns to all ages what faithful and fruitful churches may expect to receive from God, and what those who are unfaithful may expect to suffer from his hand, yeah, that God's dealings with his churches may afford useful instruction to the rest of the world, to put them upon considering, if judgment begin at the house of God, what shall the end of those be that do not obey the gospel of Christ? 1 Peter 4 verse 17 Thus end the messages of Christ to the Asian churches, the epistolary part of this book. We now come to the prophetical part.